I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show... Francis Spufford returns to Little Atoms to talk about his latest novel, Cahokia Jazz. Francis Spufford is the author of five highly praised works of non-fiction. His debut novel, Golden Hill, won multiple awards, including the Costa First Novel Award and the Desmond Elliott Prize. His second novel, Light Perpetual, was awarded the 2022 Encore Award and longlisted for the Booker Prize. And today we're going to talk about Francis's latest novel, which is Cahokia Jazz. Francis, welcome back to Little Atoms. Neil, thank you for having me. Tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe this novel. All right. It is it is a noir crime novel set in a different timeline of American history from the one we actually got. So Though it's 1922 and some things are familiar, like Prohibition and gangsters and streetcars and early jazz, um, other things are very different because this is a, a version of American history in which European diseases didn't wipe out the Native American population back in the 1500s. So the setup continued, which in real history, DeSoto saw in about 1530 when there were still very large populations of Native Americans farming maize up and down the Mississippi. And I thought, isn't it weird what an absence in mainstream American history Native Americans make? What if there were so many of them that they couldn't just disappear conveniently to the margins and appear in in cowboys and Indians films? What What if the setup was more like Mexico, where almost everybody has got some indigenous ancestors. What if, what if one of the great Native American cities, Cahokia, which is now an archaeological site beside the Mississippi, had been re-inhabited and had lived on getting bits of technology transfer from Catholic Europe and able to withstand the westward expansion of the United States until it could enter on its own terms. So there it is, 1922. It's It's got a sacred ancient centre. It's got 17th and 18th century bits of Catholic architecture around that. And around that, again, it's got canneries and slaughterhouses and, and all of the industrial might of the early 20th century. And what would that be like, I asked myself, as the, as the setting... For a murder. But then, since I am a science fiction reader, 
it was never going to be just a murder. It had to be a murder where when you solved it, you you solved the mystery of the of the city and where far more was at stake than just one death. And you mentioned this in the afterword as well, but um, alternative history stories mm. often are exposition heavy, which can slow down the story. This one does not do that. And this story, I mean, it, it's very quickly, you just feel like you're, the story is inhabiting a real place. It, it doesn't feel constantly like you're reminded that this is an I alternative am more history. Delighted you say, I am more delighted you say that than you can possibly imagine, because as I wrote it, of course, I was constantly going, am I explaining too much? Is this a massive block of exposition? I should be breaking up with the pneumatic drill of inspiration. Am I just going on and on too much? So if you don't think so, colour me pleased. Well, tell me how you avoided it. Well, this is one of the things where I mean, I'm not a science fiction writer, but I am a science fiction fan. And there is a handy body of expertise in science fiction about how you get around this problem. Starting with the useful concept of the info dump, which is what you want to avoid, which is where minor characters stand in the foreground and go, as you know, Bob, this city was actually founded in the 14th century. So you don't you don't want to do that. There are various useful little tricks and techniques, the main one of which is to have a protagonist who is themselves halfway to being an outsider to the setting so there's things they don't understand and if you couple that with a with a mystery plot so not understanding things is like the motor of of the whole affair then you've got a kind of logic there where it's exciting to find things out and you can make it difficult rather than just handing it to people in these big inert slabs and i remember years ago when we talked about golden hill something i remember vividly you saying that in trying to construct a that was a sort of, you know, pastiche of a old novel and mm. the world in which it was set was very, obviously very well researched. But you mentioned that, you know, in doing that, the key to that was just finding like a little bit of historical accuracy to hang things on rather again than doing the whole info dump. So tell us something, I guess, about more about building this world and researching the original, what it would have been like if this was a real place. The same thing is is absolutely true again, that it doesn't need that many details so long as they're the right ones. Okay, so so if you're faithful to what early 20th century real American cities were like, if you if you watch early films, if you if you look at maps, you get a sense of the fabric that you're trying to you're trying to alter. And then I don't know how to put this because I've never you are the first person who's asked me to explain how I did this. Um, you look for the points of difference which can you know nearly slide by, but then will kind of catch in the corner of the reader's eye where they go, hang on a minute, that doesn't fit with my expectations. And a lot of it is to do with language. And one of my basic decisions was that this city needed its own language. Um, I do not speak any Native American languages. And the one they're speaking in the book, Anopa, is actually based on something called Mobilian trade jargon, which was a, a pidgin used by different Native American peoples along the Mississippi to talk to each other. And so it had this very basic vocabulary. It covers kind of traveling, food, violence, Sex, kind of, are you my friend? You are not my friend. I hate you. Blood, usefully, and things like that. And so it's trade jargon. And I thought, in the version of history I'm doing, in which a people who 
who never existed quite in our history thrived and merged and fused with lots of other people it would be this language that grew from a pigeon into into the whole thing so my protagonist detective barrow doesn't speak anopa but the people around him do so he is constantly looking through a kind of murky window at what people at what people mean and again you don't need very many words to have the feeling that there is that there is a whole foreign hard to understand world just out of reach there's a very nice line by ludwig wittgenstein who doesn't you know you don't usually think of as a useful source for writing thrillers but i i will i will swear by this one he said to invent a language or to imagine a language is to imagine a form of life. And that's absolutely right, that if you give people some you know, a, a characteristic speech, then that brings with it a whole kind of logic half out of view about the way they live and what matters to them. So, so I've got this half visible culture, which is puzzling to the protagonist as well. And I've also got a sort of quiet game going on with anthropology and the history of anthropology. I promise this is more fun than I'm making it sound, in which, for example, the great American anthropologist Alfred Kroeber, who is not accidentally the father of Ursula Le Guin, the great science fiction writer, turns up in the middle of my novel as a walk-on character, slightly, I hope not too much, like Basil Exposition in the Austin Powers films with a pipe to explain what's going on. But where solving an anthropological puzzle, saying how does this culture work, this imagined thing, is what will in turn solve the nature of the city and and help with solving the murder too. So each invented thing can be in the pattern of really existing things. It just happens to be something which didn't happen. And I was going to raise this later on, but you've you've brought him up now. So um, obviously, you know, you talked about her father, but Ursula Le Guin obviously casts a shadow over this novel as well. Oh, she is one of the greats. If there's a kind of row of greats in the gallery of my mind, she is in there and and huge. And the book is dedicated to her in slightly encrypted form as Professor Crover's daughter. And I, I hesitated because that's a bit patriarchal. And actually, she's a lot more famous than him. And he's really Ursula Le Guin's father. But I, I thought the puzzle was worth the, the touch of patriarchy. And I hope it doesn't piss people off too much. What I learned from her as a teenager and afterwards was how world building serves the emotional development of a book. And I had I had The Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed by her in my head all the way through. The Dispossessed is described as a, an ambiguous utopia in some of the early editions. And Cahokia Jazz is an ambiguous utopia too. It's it's not a perfect place. And the goodness of the city I've imagined rests on some some fairly brutal foundations in places, but it's still supposed to be a place that's better than actual America in 1922. The reader may disagree, but I it's utopian to me. And I hope by the end, you can kind of see why I mean it. So you mentioned that Cahokia is actually a real place. There's um, mm. an archaeological site and it's it's basically the opposite side. Well, I guess it's the St. Louis suburbs, really, because it's obviously St. Louis metropolitan area. So that's where it is on the, on the banks of the Mississippi. Describe for us something of the the city that is different to, I guess, what somebody visiting St. Louis now would see, i.e. the sort of central plaza and the, yeah. uh, the quarters, etc., and the mound. 
Well, if you if you do what I did and you go to St. Louis and you get an Uber to the other bank of the Mississippi, what you see is a huge earth pyramid, the biggest earth pyramid kind of north of the of the Mayan ones in Central America, but earth, not stone. And around it, what has been kind of gradually investigated by archaeologists for a century and has turned out to be more and more complicated because it was a it was a huge medieval settlement but it's smooth landscape and and many many mounds of different sizes with kind of different with different functions but what i did was to take the archaeological map of the place and put an early 20th century city on top so the plaza which is a kind of wide open field of short grass with a few trees growing on it really becomes a vast paved area like the like the Zocalo in, in Mexico City. And around it, instead of trees where kind of herds of wild deer run about, there are pillared Hispanic arcades. And then beyond that, there are there are many, many, many winding narrow alleys of the kind of houses which the Jesuits really did build for Native Americans, but built way down in, in South America. And then Beyond that, there is um, beyond that there is the beginning of the nineteenth and twentieth century industrial city with streetcars and five and six story apartment buildings and a central business district. And I had fun with the architecture because I remembered Ian Banks talking about how you know how there are no budgetary restrictions on um, on science fiction writers, and I could put up a gigantic Beaux Arts railway station with a stained glass dome if I wanted to. I could bring in Frank Lloyd Wright and get him to build a hotel as beautiful as the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, sadly knocked down in the real world. I could play with the River Mississippi and I could have steamboats on it playing jazz. I could, I mean, one of the reasons I love early 20th century American cities is that they are remade by technology, but it's not yet the technology of the of the car. So um, it's full of streetcar lines and um, express trains and electric wires overhead and steel framed very tall buildings looking sublime one of the nicest compliments i've had about this book is that it reminded somebody of playing grand theft auto and they said kind of i had this feeling that if i if i'd walked out of the plot and turned left the city would have kept going which is kind of what i wanted it's supposed to feel limitless and detailed and and a bit grubby and um and also from time to time beautiful and mysterious and shocking. But yeah, with me making all of it from carefully placed economical details, that may be the only person who reads this book and thinks of Grand Theft Auto, but I'll, I will take that as a testimonial. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Francis Spufford, and we're talking about his new novel, Cahokia Jazz. And Francis, we haven't spoken really about any of the characters yet. We've mainly been concentrating on the world building, and I want to get to that in a minute. But just one other thing before you mentioned them already, the Jesuits play a large Mm. part in this story, or at least the history of this story. And what that means then is that now in this alternative USA, the Catholic Church plays a a much larger part than it does in reality. So tell us something about the role of the the Catholic Church in this city, in your novel. And I guess also, of course, because it's it's become the church of the Native Americans, therefore it's clearly, a, you know, in a lot of ways, a different Catholic church to what we see today. It is. It's a, it's a slightly mutated Catholic church, which has incorporated various, various indigenous things and been changed by it as a result. But it's made from, it's made from existing elements as with lots of things when you're when you're writing a book, kind of useful things you discover and things you realize your plot needs kind of converge um, and 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 then you then you've got something. So useful things you discover. The Jesuits, I know the odd Jesuit now, and they have a, a bit of a mixed record in North America. They ran slave plantations in the real world in, in Maryland. They ran missions in California, which unfortunately were responsible for quite a lot of indigenous deaths because they concentrated people who had no resistance to European diseases. Things went a bit better in Canada. But the impressive thing happens way down at the other end of South America in in what's now Paraguay, where it's an astonishing story, which I didn't know. For about 100 years or so, um, it's the, the film The Mission is about this. The Jesuits basically ran a kind of country within a country within the Spanish Empire in which they and the Guarani Indians ran a series of city-states with Jesuits in charge, but with Guarani armies, um, which fought off Brazilian slave raiders for about a century. And I thought, what I need, and you know, there is still there is a vein of Jesuit idealism about indigenous people. And I thought, what I need is a setup that means that the good bits can thrive and the less good bits wither on the vine. And so what I need is for this to be happening outside the Spanish Empire. So I I send my Jesuits up from Mexico City in the beginning of the 17th century to find the city of Cahokia. And they are then out of reach of kind of civil power. So whatever they do has to work with indigenous power. And I've provided the city of Cahokia with a kind of political dynasty of genius, which is, you know, sticking a finger in the scales, but why not? Okay, so that is the useful real stuff I discovered. The needs of the plot bit is that I thought if 
a Native American city-state is going to be able to to fight back successfully against colonists moving in from the eastern seaboard, they're going to need an awful lot of technology transfer from Europe. So what they need is the backing of, of at least some European states. So by making them Catholics, I give a reason why They'll have help from the pre-revolutionary French state. They'll have help from Spain. Um, they'll have gun factories set up. They'll be they'll be defending themselves the way that the real world Guarani Indians did in in Paraguay, but without that kind of imperial lid over the top to keep their aspirations suppressed. So yeah, it's a it's a selective and weird Catholicism. But given that Jesuits these days tend to be extremely left-wing monks, at least all the ones I've ever met, they rather like this, and they seem to approve of the modifications to their history I've made. And let's talk about some of the characters then, and, and yeah. you just sort of alluded to this, but and obviously this is, um, we could talk about the actual protagonist of the novel, which we're doing in a minute, but because this is yeah. um, a hierarchical society, we'll talk about the Hashi family, and as you've just sort of yeah. alluded to, you've sort of quite cheekily given... America, a republic, a sort of royal family again for a bit. They were the royal family of Cahokia when it was a, a, an independent country before it decided that its survival lay in joining the Union during the American Civil War. And that necessarily meant that they, they stopped having their royal family, except that they're still there 50 years after joining the Union later in 1922. There is still a palace in the middle of town and it's still got the man of the sun living in it. No title anymore. In theory, just a citizen, but in fact, still wielding enormous informal power and lots of commercial power as well, because the, the Cahokians built the transcontinental railway, which runs conveniently through their city, doing a deal with every indigenous nation to their west, rather than simply destroying them with Maxim guns, as happened in real history. So there is there is a wily a wily old aristocrat in a palace doing his best to use persuasion, charm, and other kinds of informal influence to keep his people safe. And because, like real Native American cultures, this one does dissent not father-son or mother-daughter, but uncle-nephew and a kind of aunt-niece, there, there is also a woman who is the woman of the moon who is supposed to to provide the heir, who is his niece, though it all turns out to be a bit more complicated than than that. But it means that you've got you've got an aristocracy, basically, an aristocracy coping with living in a in a republican world. But that means that one of the things that I can do is I can talk about what it would be like to have an indigenous elite, to have people who spend their time playing polo with other more crowned monarchs. And um the man of the sun went to Harvard. And he will put on moccasins and ceremonial clothing, but most of the time he wears Prince of Wales check and a variety of delightful colognes, which was fun to write, but also is supposed to be complicating the kind of default picture of Indigenous people as necessarily marginal, as pushed to the edges of, of history and pushed into the the worst remnants of the of the continent of North America. This is this is a storybook version of of how it might have been, should have been better than that. And the protagonist of the novel then is um, yeah. Joe Barrow. He's a detective when we meet him. He's also a man of, he's a mixed race character. 
But essentially, as you also already alluded to earlier on, because of the importance of this sort of character to this kind of story, he was brought up in an orphanage. So he is without his own native language, which Mm. means he is always one step removed from what's going on around him. Tell us something about Joe. Joe is... I I wanted to write a protagonist who, to begin with, you wouldn't realise was a protagonist. I wanted I wanted you to start I won't I'll be careful about what I say. I wanted you to start the book thinking, ah, oh, this is an odd couple kind of an odd couple cop drama with Barrow and his and his partner, his white partner Drummond as Drummond is the is the mouth, Barrow is the muscles, and and I want you to start off thinking of them like that. But actually Barrow is an enigma to himself. He's not only between between worlds in terms of of, of cultures. He's also between vocations because, as becomes clear as the book goes on, he really should be a jazz pianist. And he has, for some reason, constantly thwarted himself and stood in his own light and prevented this career from happening. So there's a psychological puzzle to do with him. He grew up in an orphanage. He's called Barrow because he comes from Barrow, Nebraska, and also because I wanted him to have the name of a, of a household object that other people push around, at least to begin with. He's also enormous. I mean, he's he's six foot four and looks like a heavyweight boxer and psychologically does not find it easy to be a hero or a protagonist. He is one of nature's followers, but constantly nudged by events in having to do more than that. And I hope I hope he's quite lovable in a in an enormous, grumpy kind of way. And just one more thing then before I ask you to read us a bit, if you would. Um, Obviously, something we haven't talked about, although you've mentioned it a couple of times, and it's in the title of the book, Cahokia Jazz. Tell us something about jazz in the world of this city. Well, it's one of the ways in which I want this 1922 to be pretty faithful to real 1922, because um, jazz is is the first great music of of the American fusion. Jazz is a little ambiguous utopia in itself because it's one of the ways in which a music comes out of the kind of the darkness of american history and from from slavery and is a gift given by the enslaved and their descendants to the rest of america and i also just really like early jazz i i like the the kind of i like the first 10 years of where dixieland is is developing its its solo traditions and where you've got louis armstrong beginning to to play and bessie smith singing the blues and that is the music that Barrow ought to be making. He is ethnically ambiguous, so that when he's when he's dressed in a dark suit and a hat, being a detective, everybody assumes he must be Native American. And if he puts on his performing suit, everybody assumes he must be African American. And he is wholehearted about the music, even if he can't quite manage to be wholehearted about letting himself give his life to it. It's a book with a soundtrack. Literally has a soundtrack, um, which I've put on Spotify. But it had a soundtrack in my head as I was as I was writing it because all right, so jazz is is the great music of American fusion and the great music of optimism despite everything about what American culture is capable of. It's also a great urban music. It's a in there long before rock and roll and and funk and things, providing the kind of the heartbeat of of city life in the music itself. So so I want you to be able to 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 hear the clarinets and the pianos and the and the double bass in the traffic um and i want you to be able to hear the traffic in the in the music what's the playlist called it's called cahokia jazz a playlist and it's got it's got most of the of the specific named songs that the book contains apart of course from the ones i made up can i get you to finish it off with a reading them 
I can. In fact, I was going to read a bit with machine gun fire in it, but I thought that I think instead I should probably, I should probably after that, I should probably read a bit with music in it, shouldn't I? Um, Okay. Mr. Barrow, after a hard day of detecting, during which he's been quite severely injured and been sewn back up again, is sitting in the bar of the Frank Lloyd Wright Hotel while old friends of his are playing jazz at the front, um, and he's just finished his steak. Dolphus nudged Alma aside at the microphone. You could swallow that, Joe, he said. You've got time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's now my unexpected pleasure to announce... We've been joined by one of the finest keyboard men in 45 states. He'd been moonlighting down hereabouts as a policeman, some crazy reason. But tonight, we're going to recall him to his true talent. Come on up here, ladies, gentlemen, at the piano, Indian Joe Barrow. A sleek black number. The Algonquian's piano turned out to be as good as their steak. Barrow did a few bars of James P. Johnson's Harlem strut to get his fingers loose, and the super-fast, tinkling stride of it came through sweet and precise. He shook his wrists and nodded to Dolphus, waiting to be told the tune. You pick, said Dolphus, a major compliment, control of the set list being such a foundation stone to Dolphus's artistic tyranny. Well, um, Kansas City Stomp? KC Stomp it is. In the solo form in which Barrow had been working it through these last few days, more often on tabletops and counter edges than on an actual instrument, Morton's tune got all its play from a stretched bottom hand and a stretched top hand on the keys, giving you effectively four lines as pinkies and thumbs worked fast and way apart. In the band version, the tune dismantled into four parts for four separate musicians. The opening was a lineup of separate calls. Didoo, 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 didoo. Dolphus wailed, stukely honked, he jangled, and Dutch dumbadumbadumbad, and then all in together for the brass annunciatory blare of the tune. Willie doing the flat footed beat of the stomp underneath, Dolphus and stukely jousting, he and Dutch mainly rhythm at this point, but the way the stomp worked for a band was chorus and then solo, chorus and then solo for each of the players in turn, as many times as you liked. Through the chorus, and Dolphus nodded him in first, the whole thing back in his two hands, taking the tune bold but plain this first time round, with nothing but the stomp beat underneath from Willie, till Dolphus came back in over the top with a noodling moan, and they all restated the tune together. Then Dolphus himself, of course, making the clarinet sob and sing and almost squeak, and then Stukely, neck inflated like a bullfrog, squeezing out sweet and golden statements from the cornet, then Dutch, thunderous plucking and slapping, and round again, by common consent, a little faster this time. The floor was filling. A couple of Taclusa girls at the front, doing the crazy strides and arm waves of the juba dance, and couples beyond them, copying, imitating, doing their best to keep up. This time round, they all gave it more. They all pushed the tune a little bit harder, and it began to melt at the edges into individual invention. Barrow ran his bottom hand at a different tempo, started to throw in grace notes, trills, trips to the wild, far corners of the keyboard. Dolphus climbed up into the kingdom of the birds, stukely coaxed out ever quicker, more outrageous, brazen logic. Dutch's hands blurred. The next time round, faster still, Alma produced a ukulele and came in for a turn in a soprano skitter of notes. The boundaries between solos started melting too, and they all started to embroider on each other, but it was whirling too fast now for legs, and even the juba girls 
dissolved into protesting laughter and applause. So I've been talking to Francis Bufford. We've been talking about his latest novel, Cahokia Jazz, which is out now in the UK from Faber. Francis, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. A pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.